Welcome, friends, to Happy to Fail, Season 2, Episode 10. This is the podcast where every single time we sit here, we talk, we listen, we learn, and we lose that fear to talk about topics that more often than not are so uncomfortable to speak about in the community because sometimes we're just not ready for it. Or maybe the cultural implications about talking about something like suicide is, is very frightening for people. Imagine right now that I said the word suicide inside of a mall, inside of a public place. A lot of people would stop what they are doing, they would turn their heads because it's something that's so emotionally draining because either we don't know what to do or we think that, oh, they're not going to follow through with it. So this podcast episode is uh, something that's going to be very sensitive. So there is a trigger warning. If you feel uncomfortable listening to this episode, we will not judge you for it. And we would strongly suggest that you check out maybe some of the previous ones where we talked about uh, connecting and building a rapport with our therapist, reconnecting with happy moments in our lives, but also very important, check out the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273 8255. Once again, that is 1-800-273-8255, available 24-7. We know that it can be so frightening to talk about this because we are going through so many things in life right now. Being open about those emotions, those thoughts can truly make a change in your lives. My name is Juan Villas Court. I am from Puerto Rico. And not only am I a person that's proud to have uh, lived experiences related to mental health challenges, I'm also a person that attempted against my life on three occasions, not including all of the ideations, all of the thoughts related to suicide. And I want to be very open about that in this podcast episode, but I am not alone because somebody that I've loved to have these conversations about psychiatric hospitalization, about all of these things from multiple perspectives I have here. Once again, back my awesome friend, a therapist, Ana Conde. Ana, are you ready for this? Because I know that this is the uncomfortable topic that so many people just love to brush off to the side, right? It is. It's the elephant in the room. And um, I'm ready to, to talk about that with you today. I think that a lot of what we've been doing in this season has been building up to this because why does somebody eventually fall under psychiatric hospitalization? Why is it important that somebody build a rapport with their therapist, right? Usually something has already happened before that leads to these different events. And when we talk about somebody falling under a crisis or something, it usually involves them saying or attempting against their, their lives. Why do you think it's so difficult? Because suicide is nothing new, and we'll be talking about some statistics in a couple of seconds, but Despite the fact that it's nothing new, we've overcome a lot of other things. I think we can talk about bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, so many things, but suicide continues to be to have that huge taboo and stigma. Why do you think that is? I think it's it's a lack of awareness as to what leads someone to have ideations or attempt or succeed at a suicide attempt. So, you know, like whenever you see suicide prevention days and weeks and movements coming up on social media, you see a lot of like, you know, copying and pasting the suicide prevention number, which we did at the beginning of the podcast, you know, for the sake of if someone needs it. But I think we miss the mark oftentimes as to all of the contributing factors to suicide prevention, you know, access to mental health care, um, homelessness, food security, safety, violence, all of these things can contribute. And so I think we've kind of fallen as a society in a little bit of a pattern as to just talking about like this one thing that a very isolated group of people 
who suffer from mental health related, you know, symptoms or diagnoses go through that. When in fact, I feel it's so much more than that. And I feel like something that happens a lot with that is we we have all of the events where we talk about, hey, it's okay to talk about it, right? It's a, it's a one-day event or we celebrate it all month long, but because it's something that's not visual, right? We're not seeing it because in my case, one of the times that I attempted against my life, I was super fine that day. I was making jokes with, with everybody because I was so sure that I was just going to follow through with it that I made peace with myself. And I think we have this misconception a lot of times that when some people are contemplating against their life, maybe they become a little bit isolated, maybe they become more quiet, but that's not everybody. And we've talked about the whole process of invalidating and minimizing people. And I think the challenge is that, look, I am I am grateful that there's a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number, but what are the implications of somebody actually talking about suicide? What are the implications of, say, I'm the person, I go to my aunt, I go to a provider, and I talk about all of this, and I openly say maybe some of the ideas, how I would possibly do it, the emotional implications of not following through with it, the emotional implications of just saying somebody knows this. Somebody has heard me possibly talk about this from experience of not just myself, but people that I've supported. That is even more draining sometimes than everything else. What's your take of this whole process of just having somebody be open about this and not immediately reacting or or frowning upon it or saying a suicide could be the easy way out? You know, I think it's one of those things that as a society and even more specifically, you know, to talk about our Puerto Rican Hispanic culture, it's almost like people automatically go into problem-solving mode. And this also ties back a lot to the minimizing sort of patterns that we see in our culture that we've talked about in previous episodes, where it's like, well, you have nothing to be suicidal about. Like, don't even say that. And then go about your day and it's like, well, what is this person supposed to do when they're feeling like ending their life and they've just been brushed off? Like, well, you know, there's nothing to do. Or being put in the position where you're being told to do things, you know, again, the problem solving thing that aren't going to necessarily actually help. It's just really difficult to find a balance between how do we teach people to talk about suicide and and how to be of support when someone comes to you with suicidal ideation, but also how do we basically change decades of, of suicide being a taboo, you know? No, and sometimes because of that taboo, we could have a loved one reach out to us and be open about the negative thoughts in their head and openly talk about suicide. And that's incredible because it means that they connect it with you. But then on the flip side, because it's such an uncomfortable conversation, maybe we fall under this uh, mechanism of telling them, uh, don't think about that. Suicide is not, not the option. It's never the option. And believe me when I say from personal experiences, I know. Uh, many of us, we we know that's not the only option. We don't want to go there. Many times, that's why we are open about it. But we get desperate. We get tired. We get exhausted. And we may fall under this uh, assumption that maybe it's something that came up recently. Uh, something bad happened last week. It was not solved. So maybe that's why these thoughts, that's why these thoughts are coming in right now. On many occasions, it's after months, after years of trying and trying and trying to succeed. But Maybe they don't have the proper access to services. They feel alone. They feel like they don't have the support system. So would you say that this is sometimes the challenge, which is more so than talking about it, it's that we don't recognize just how long of a challenging road that they've had that maybe leads to these all thoughts? Oh, absolutely. And when you take into consideration that 
males have a higher risk level for attempting and succeeding at suicide attempts. And the fact that, you know, males are so invalidated still with regards to mental health and their own experiences. Some quick data here. This comes to us from America's Health Rankings, which is nationally, the suicide rate has increased 25.4% from 1999 to 2016, with increases occurring in every state save for Nevada. In 2017, there was an estimated 1.4 million suicide attempts and more than 47,000 deaths by suicide, making it the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Firearms were involved in half of all suicides, and there were more than twice as many deaths by suicide than by homicide. How common and how close to us can suicide be in our communities? I was thinking while you were kind of reading the statistics, like these are just the statistics that we even know of. You know, I can't even imagine the amount of people who in their own suffering have attempted it and survived and those numbers go undisclosed. I was thinking of the the singer from Lincoln Park who died by suicide. Um, and I remember his wife saying, you know, like he was perfectly fine, quote unquote, perfectly fine, you know. And I think we oftentimes because we have on a day to day basis, I feel like a lot of the interactions and conversations that we have with others are very on the go. They tend to be very superficial. We really don't know what someone is going through. Anyone can have a, a history of struggling with suicidal ideation or have a history of suicide attempts. It happens through every social class. It, it happens, you know, to people with degrees, with no degrees. It's just, you know, suicide and suicidal ideation do not discriminate. You mentioned the, the singer of Lincoln Park. Let's think back to most of our favorite singers, actors, and we're like, wow, that person, it's almost like they lived through depression. And many times they literally did. They, they became experts at taking their own pain and not necessarily healing from it, but rather being able to project it, being able to portray what, what they are feeling, but then we glorify that. Like Robin Williams. Exactly, like Robin Williams. People think that it's maybe just like a superficial, artificial thing that somebody carefully developed a song with this purpose. No, it comes from the heart. It comes from so much pain that we go through. And if that happens with this uh, millionaire, somebody that has all of these accesses to services and popularity and all of that, think about the people in our homes. Kate Spade, she died by suicide, I think it was a year or two ago, the designer. No, and another example, two examples actually have, one of them is a YouTuber called Attica. I didn't actually follow his channel or anything, but I thought it was a very fascinating thing that when a video was published on his channel, by the time the video was published, his body was already found or around that same time. And in the video, he talks about the fact that during his life, he attempted to win so many people to be that cool person that in the whole process, he lost himself. I think this is the reminder that we have so many people in our families that are being open and saying, I don't feel well, but that doesn't necessarily mean they know what to do. On the flip side, another example to me that really, really shook me, I'm a, I'm a big fan of professional wrestling. And in Japan, this wrestler called Hanakamura, uh, she died by suicide. And what happened was, here's the social media component. She was part of a reality series, which you know, the least real thing about reality shows is reality yeah. shows, right? They are completely <laughs> improvised and created. They had her portray this character on the reality show as somebody that was to not be liked. So people on social media began telling her, like, die, die. She actually uh, died by suicide, and people made videos celebrating her suicide. In my case, one of the attempts that I had against my life 
uh, when I started going to a psychiatrist with my mother, eventually the psychiatrist said, hey, I would love to speak with your father, right, with my dad, just so he knew what was going on. My father went into my home, and I can't even, you know, begin to to say the words that he was saying there, although they were in Spanish. Here's like a, a little ray of hope, right? I'm finally connecting with a, with my psychiatrist at one point. My father, he went home. This is after I was spitting nonstop because of my OCD. I developed severe nervous tics, so I was a mess, people. Like, I was just non-functional. He goes to my mother's home and proceeds to yell at me while I'm spitting. Ticks are in full effect. I'm crying. My mother's crying because I'm crying. And then he's just yelling at both of us. He is insulting her. He's calling me worthless as I'm already thinking I'm worthless. So you can just imagine all of that emotional baggage. When I had that little ray of hope, I was like, we were almost there. I'm finally connecting. My mother cares about me. Why don't you? I almost went into like this state of shock and I was no longer anxious. I almost felt this instinct of there's a very easy way out of this one. And the easy way out is that if your own father is not even willing to understand what you're going through, are you that worthless of a human being that you shouldn't be here? If the answer is yes, then go ahead. And I threat, I tried to throw myself off a car in one of those situations. And thankfully, I'm still here, right? But it's all of these situations that, as you mentioned, how many stories do we not know? How many people have thankfully been successful? And they've been open about this like 20, 30 years after the fact. But at that moment, they may be attempted it against their life. How many people have attempted it and are no longer here? And maybe all that person needed was that ray of hope. Somebody that will look at them in the eye and say, you know what? You matter and we can provide that that motivation that sometimes you need. From a therapist's uh, point of view, how can we even begin to have these conversations in our communities to have people recognize that this has always been around us, but as the problems pile up in our communities, that trauma continues building up. We know this is a challenge that we've seen the numbers, right? They're not going down. They're only going up. What could be like one of the first steps to take action? I would say smaller and more focused community interventions. That would be a place to start, you know, more conversations in the community with smaller groups of people. You know, who do you know that is struggling? Have you yourself struggled? And having more sort of heart-to-heart conversations about it. I think, you know, even the way that we sometimes start out the conversation can be horribly stigmatizing. Um, and, And setting it from a place of the person is selfish when in reality and and one i think you can talk more about this than i can but in my experience working with people who have attempted suicide i want to say that almost everyone that i've worked with it's coming from a place of selflessness like they want to take themselves out of the equation because that's how much they're struggling that they feel that everyone else would be better off if they weren't here i mentioned that i attempted against my life three times and all three the common factor was i felt worthless but I was a burden because I'm still here. So I've been involved in many trainings where we talk about suicide and the alert signs that we have, you know, things to look out for. Let's just scale it back and talk and listen to our community. In a time where we have things happening with discrimination, people fearing, am I gonna be alive tomorrow? Let's recognize that the trauma that we are going through, as resilient as we wanna be and we wanna sell ourselves, We are human beings, people. I've had so many people very close to me that when I open up and share my story, they will actually open up uh, with their story and say, Juan, 
I never attempted it, but I thought about it, especially when I lost somebody in my life or when I lost my job and I thought I would lose my car. You know, I, I put everything in a balance and I said like, hey, instead of uh, losing my credit score, maybe it will be this and it will be that. And it is so easy, going back to our very first episode, to minimize that. Oh, it's, you're going to get over it. It's not my emotions. It's not the situation that I'm going through. It's very easy for me to share my thoughts about your situation, the things that you're going through, because it's not my life. But when we actually put on the boots, put on the pants, we put on the the spiritual component and everything that that person is going through, that's when you can sit there and go like, oh, wow, there's like a, an intergenerational component to this. This is something something the person's been thinking about it for so long. I'm connecting it to what you said earlier. Like, you know, back in the day, we didn't have this. Well, yes, we did. It's just, you know, it wasn't named necessarily in the same way and it wasn't talked about and we still don't talk about it enough but I you know I a couple of months ago we found out that someone that we know had a family member die by suicide and I remember when I told my mother her reaction was well I don't agree with that and and you know where the bible says that they are and mind you my mother is not a very overly religious person and I was just like I'm thinking right now like I really should have had a different conversation with her at that moment that's part of it we need to not be afraid to make f- even family members uncomfortable and say like, you know, regardless of what you feel, this is what this is for this person. This is their life. And and how do we recognize, you know, and, and honor them that they were struggling so much that this is where they ended up, you know, and how can we tie that back into supporting ourselves and our family and our community? And by family, you know, it can be blood or not family, but I'll be the first to admit for me it's it's I'm way more comfortable and way more used to talking about suicide in at work in the clinical context where you know it's not a quote unquote taboo or bad word because we talk about suicide every day we see people who are with us because they attempted suicide um or they have significant suicidal ideation and they couldn't be safe so even if we are able to talk about it in a certain context how can we also be much more aware of how can we change the conversations with people who are closer to us? How can we make sure that we do our part within our, you know, little microsystem of validating these people and their struggle and what they went through? And that's exactly why I wanted to call this a conversation about suicide, because it's like, as we continue talking, I'm going back to like my times of how would I have liked my father or somebody else to react with me? And what you mentioned with uh, the loss of your family member there is that say I'm the person that I'm open with you, like Anna, I've been thinking about this, you know, I've been having these thoughts. I've had I've seen a lot of situations where immediately the other person reacts very emotionally and imposes their emotions towards me as I'm still thinking about this, right? So so it's not that these thoughts are going away, but all of a sudden, if I'm the person that's thinking about suicide, I gotta manage your emotions, I gotta manage mine. I'm then second guessing, like, was this a bad idea? Now what? Who's gonna she, you know, who's she gonna tell this to? Like, oh my goodness, am I gonna be hospitalized immediately? And then it turns into like a panic mode. And I've seen a lot of people tell me, like, I regret opening up because sometimes when you bring in the cultural component, many people are not ready. And look, that's okay. But what matters is recognizing that maybe I'm not ready for this, recognizing that I need some tools. And the first thing, the first thing that we can do when somebody finally opens up is embrace. Embrace in a judgment-free manner and don't immediately react. Allow that whole process to, to marinate, as I like to say, because sometimes our first instinct can be, well, don't do it. 
the reason that a lot of people say it out loud is because they don't want to. The reason people seek help is because they don't want to. So what matters is how can I create a healing space so now that you've opened up with me about these thought processes, what can I say to let you know it's okay to continue this conversation? Would you like to talk about this? Because that way the person's saying, oh my goodness, I actually found somebody that's not reacting to what I'm saying. Instead, they are listening to what I'm saying. And there's a lot of resources just thrown out there right off the bat. There's like mental health first aid, which can help somebody in an emotional crisis. There's emotional CPR. I'm actually a certified uh, eCPR facilitator, and I've been loving the conversations that we've had here in Puerto Rico. There's uh, assist training, which helps people in, in specific situations like this, where what happens when you have somebody right there in front of you and they're open about the fact that they have these thoughts. How do you look for an invitation to have that person let you in emotionally, to be able to have that person be alive for just one more day? Because sometimes when we have that low self-esteem, we are so sure that suicide is the only way out. What could be the most healing thing is knowing that we can be alive for one more day because that one day can turn into two days. And we take it step by step because imagine that I'm opening up to you because of something that's been happening for five, six years. Let's be real. That's probably not going to be solved in a one-hour conversation. But I can go to sleep saying, I begun talking about this. Now, to num now tomorrow, we can take the next step. And the day afterwards, we can take the other step. But of course, that requires what? Guidance, patience, a healthy support system, recognizing that it's a very uncomfortable conversation. Because notice that in all of this, We've spent over 25 minutes talking about this without even bringing up how sometimes people die by suicide. So many times people focus on that, that they forget there's a story, there's a human being that is going through this. As somebody that's lived through this, let's please stop obsessing over how. Let the person be open about their story. Let the person just have the forum. And eventually they will open up to, to other conversations regarding their life in order to be supported. Meet them where they're at. If the person is saying this to you, recognize that in that moment, it's taking everything in them to let you know how much they're struggling. They don't need to be told, no, don't do that. They know. Matching the tone of where they're at and being there with them and gradually getting to a point where like, like you were saying earlier about, you know, how do we get through tomorrow? Let them know like, it's okay that you feel what you feel right now. And I'm here with you. As somebody that like I've attempted against my life, I've been guilty and I'll be super transparent that we become so accustomed to, to living in pain. We all know suicide should not be the option. What is the option? And that is the conversation that we are so afraid to have. Because if somebody lost uh, lost somebody in their life of great significance. If somebody lost their job and I just go over to you and I say, that's not the option, what is? What are the alternatives? Sit down with the person, get to know not exactly what they want, but why? What is the intent? What, what does the person really aspire in their lives? Because when you show that you care, and you're willing to sit down in a safe environment because I feel like that the easiest way that you can feel comfortable about talking uh, talking about suicide with somebody is be in a safe environment, a place that is not threatening to you or the other person. As long as you know that you're both good in that in that location, what's the problem? Let's not be afraid to just dedicate all of that time because you, 
You could be a janitor. You could be a coordinator. You could be a, a driver. You could be anybody. You can also be the first time that somebody has ever opened up about this with somebody because I've had people talk to me about suicide while we're taking a ferry because sometimes they're like, hey, why not talk about this with a stranger? Nobody else cares about me. What do I have to lose? And then when they see like somebody out there cares, somebody out there is willing to listen. And I think it's difficult sometimes because we've had this whole conversation without bringing in the social media component, which I'd like to talk about for, for a couple of minutes because before talking about suicide was a lot more closed off, right? To, to people close to you, physically close to you. But now how many people have we had actually reach out through social media to the point that companies like Facebook, Twitter, and all that, you know, they have protocols. I've actually had to report people that tweet out, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to end my life. And out of the safety of the person, I actually do the whole process of reporting. You don't really get to hear much back of what happens, but it's knowing that that somebody out there is willing to listen. But what's your take on the social media component where somebody uh, may be open about the topic of suicide in, in front of a worldwide audience? Like everything, I feel like there's, so it can be a little bit of a double-edged sword. You can put it out there, but then I, I always get concerned of sort of, you know, what comes back to you? You know, are you receiving support? Are you receiving, you know, like you, you mentioned about the wrestler who received encouragement through the last couple of years, there's been an increase, like you were talking about, you know, protocols and algorithms created so that if someone searches for something related to suicide and side note, eating disorders as well, and I'm I'm thinking there might even be others, um, that immediately what pops up is support lines um, or even chats and stuff like that. So I think Pinterest does it. Um, you mentioned Twitter, Instagram, I think is as well. So, you know, there is something out there and that could be a... a a first step if, if you just put it out there to at least have you know access to some sort of service and connection and support immediately like i think for me this is something i've been thinking about since uh, the pandemic specifically began when you didn't go to a mall now you go to twitter or you go to facebook so what happens when you have this forum that you can write whatever you want and i feel as uh, as somebody that's i've dramatically lessened my consumption of social media especially within the past 2 to 3 months and i I've, I've even mentioned it to you where sometimes i'll be like oh anna sent me a message like 5 days ago and it's because we are so burdened social media has become a burden because the algorithms give us more of what people close to us are reacting to us so it almost becomes becomes like an obsession of identifying problems, identifying people that I don't agree with and all of these things. But then on the flip side, even though I'm thankful I made a lot of friends on social media, I think that somebody being so open about their mental health challenges, not with the not with the intent of reducing stigma. There's a big difference here, and I do want to make that clear. There's one thing about me sharing my story online with the hope of reducing that stigma, discrimination, empowering others, empowering communities. That's beautiful, and I think we should all be more open about that. But on the flip side, when I go to social media expressing my problems, not recognizing how people may respond because I can have somebody from my local community or literally like on the complete opposite side of the world react. To me, that is a sign of a failure that we have as a community. We have failed that person to provide accessible spaces so they can confidentially uh, express themselves because say I was your I was your boss, right? How many people have we had on social media 
uh, be fed up with their bosses and they go on a, on a rant. I can be the boss and it's like, you, you know, you're, you come to me, oh, Juan, did you know uh, Fulano de Tal uh, said this about you? I go on social media and I'm like, oh, I, I can do some, some damage with this. That's open information that I have. And maybe that person spoke just for the sake of letting it out there. How, how many uh, people have had therapeutic experiences like yelling at a pillow, yelling into a pillow? It is therapeutic as hell. I've, I've done it. But let's use that example of from the Japanese wrestler that I mentioned. The response was, no, follow through with it. Like, please go through with it. I think if there's just one thing, because I guarantee you somebody listening to this episode is just thinking like, well, what if I'm the person that's maybe thought about doing that is we need to understand that anything can happen. Anybody can take that information that happens and either use it for your benefit or use it for your harm. What do I expect out of sharing this? The one thing that I would, you know, if I had someone who was struggling that much with suicidal ideation or, or you know, in a, planning an attempt, I think the one thing that I would say to them if they were on social media is you owe it to yourself to talk about this in a safe space. And social media isn't necessarily that space. But that can be really hard to believe when you're already thinking of ending your life. Everyone has a right and and deserves to have a safe space to talk about whatever it is that they're going through, whether that is, you know, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, you know, mood instability, anything, whatever it is that you're going through. You have a right and you deserve a space to talk about that and just be mindful of what your social media space looks like. And who are the people that are going to be reading that? What is their you know, energy? What is your relationship with them? One of the things that's come from the pandemic is that there's a lot, if not <laughs> most, <laughs> therapists are now able to provide services in an online platform. So make use of that if you're struggling. If, if, if for some reason you struggle to leave your house, make use of that. You know, instead of logging onto Facebook, maybe find, you know, an online support space that you can sort of redirect yourself to. But, you know, I, I don't want to be insensitive and say that that's easy to do because it isn't. I think what's important here is for the person to recognize that if I want to share something on social media, that's awesome. You know why? Because you're ready to share something. And that's when you can take that and, as Anna mentioned, call the hotline or coordinate a meeting with a therapist, or even watch a video on YouTube or something about a therapist talking about this, because this way you're figuring out, okay, so I want to open up. I want to talk about this, but I've seen a, a lot of things happening, especially on Twitch. So, you know, I stream video games on, on Twitch and there's been a, a big challenge, especially during the pandemic with streamers, you know, so the streamers are the people that are uh, playing video games live and people in chat are reacting to them. Streamers feeling this uh, uncomfortable situation with people talking about them with their emotions. So a lot of streamers have been saying, look, I'm not your therapist, and they're not saying it from a negative point of view. They're saying it like, I don't know what to do with the information you're giving me, and I don't want to harm you. If we have the energy and the willingness to share our stories, it's about when, how, where, and it's embracing the fact that it's going to be an uncomfortable process because behind the topic of suicide is every single thing that we've talked about throughout this process of this second season, whether it be you've been minimized for years, you've been invalidated for years, you didn't have the best luck finding a therapist, and you're feeling the loss of hope for that. Maybe you're something in your community, something in your culture has been happening, and you're fed up with that. We can't keep looking at suicide as just this A to B, right? You're feeling great, no suicide. You're feeling miserable, suicide ideation. Or that it's a one-time thing. Exactly, because... 
we, we can't just keep looking at life like black and white. You can have an incredible badass day, but then this tiny event happens and the thought comes in. And the thought doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to follow through with it, but it's a matter of what do I do when I'm having that thought? Can I talk about that with somebody, but if that person perceives that as me uh, about to attempt against my life, what does that look like? If you're listening and you're going through something, we don't know what that is, and we don't know for how long, and we don't know what are some of the accessible services that you have. It's very easy for us to come, hey, you know, when you pull up your credit card and it's going to be 10 bucks for this session, we don't know that for sure, right? But having conversations in your community, those small spaces that Anna mentioned, that can begin to heal our communities, not just about the topic of suicide, but literally anything that is happening emotionally. During this time of the, of the pandemic, uh, I've been fortunate enough to talk to a lot of people that are just saying, I just want to talk with somebody. I don't want to solve anything in my life because I realize that what is happening right now, a lot of it may be out of my control. Despite that, my mind says otherwise. My mind can lead to that self-guilt. What have I done, right? Did I do anything to cause this? Am I the burden? Is there any any closing comment for a caregiver, somebody that wants to support their loved one that maybe is finally opening up about the topic of suicide, but they themselves just don't necessarily know what to do next? Like, What could be the next possible step? Listen to understand, not to react or respond immediately. And I think that's true for any setting that that we find ourselves in. Be there with them. Listen to what they have to say. Don't try to fix everything. Ask the person, what can I do for you right now? But also, you know, be very mindful that if they are very much unable to contract for their safety, then maybe, you know, work with them to try to get them to an emergency department, contact a mobile crisis line, contact the National Suicide Hotline, you know. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is, you know, we've talked for the entire episode of, you know, talking about suicide. And like Juan said, it, it's, it can be difficult even for us. Like, I find myself kind of stumbling on my own words about like, well, you know, I wonder how I, I'm being perceived, to be quite honest, because I've never dealt with suicidal ideation. I've worked with it. But it's always been, you know, from from a place of, of not knowing what that is entirely like. So it is a very difficult topic to talk about. And, and that's, you know, something else that I wanted to say. It's okay to say this makes me very uncomfortable. It's okay to say... People say, talk about it. How am I supposed to talk about it? Who am I supposed to talk about it with? What is that conversation supposed to look like? So if it makes you uncomfortable, that's that's okay. But it is very hard to talk about, especially when we get into the nitty gritty of it and, and everything that, you know, Juan and I talked about during this episode. So, you know, in the same breath, it's okay to say, I'm not okay talking about this. That is a very important first step. And that is a way to be there for the person that is struggling and to give yourself a little bit of grace as you try to be an agent of change regarding conversations of suicide and mental health. Hypothetically, what if somebody's listening here and recently their their family member has either attempted against their life or has thought about it? The perception of the person dealing with the whole process of suicide is very you have to be very mindful of that because something that I am so grateful for specifically my mother. My mother was there when I tried to throw myself off a car. She physically grabbed me, otherwise I would not be here. Yet despite that, the way that she looked at me never changed. It would have been very easy. Like, I don't know, if I was, if I was a parent in her shoes, I don't know how I would have viewed my son afterwards, right? In hindsight, now it's very easy to say, like I would not have judged him. But I'm speaking because like I went through that, right? 
but if I know for a fact that if my mother had seen me as a as a less kid, I'm the sick child, right? Like because I tried to kill myself, like being very real, raw, and open about that, I would have felt worthless. If anything, there was that ray of hope because I'm like, despite everything that my, that, that I'm going through, my mother believes in me. My mother is still talking about this with me. She was exploring the possibility of services available for me and not. And even when we didn't have uh, services available in Puerto Rico, she made me part of the conversation. And I valued that. And I feel like so many times we take pity on the person that's thinking about it or has attempted it. And we change our language. We change our tone of voice. We we almost shove this person to the side because they're sensitive, right? Because they're they are the weak person. And guess what? The other person feels it. When you make eye contact with a person that is either thinking about or has attempted suicide, don't look at them any different. Look at the look at them with the same smile, because that way the person knows no matter what you are there for them. And that doesn't even involve saying anything. That means that if I'm opening up about this the way that I physically behave, because sometimes it's like you mentioned, it can be uncomfortable and I can move my body like, oh my goodness, and I'm moving my hands all over the place by the person knowing that I can share these thoughts happening in my head. Yet despite that, you don't look at me differently. You're not walking away. You're not immediately dialing 911. What needs to happen eventually will happen. But at that moment, when you have that human being in front of you, just by being there, being mindful of that, Everything else can wait. What matters is connecting with that person. And whether we're talking about a child, adolescent, adult, elderly person, let's never say for certain, oh, this person's not going to kill themselves. This person's not going uh, to attempt against their life because we are not the ones going through it. How many, how many children in Puerto Rico have died by suicide because they got a bad grade. We had a situation in Puerto Rico publicly reported, right? So I can mention that. It was like a 14-year-old girl. And a lot of people, when you go to the Facebook page of the, the newspaper, you go to the comments, oh, that girl was weak. What was the problem with the parents? My first reaction was, like, I was trying to just put myself in her shoes and thinking, what pressure was possibly that, that adolescent going through that when she didn't get the best grade possible, maybe the way they, they they taught her, educated her, was you either get an A or you're worth nothing. And this is obviously me just assuming, right? To piggyback on what you mentioned about, you know, someone says and don't look at them any differently. I think that's true for whether they've said it to you for the first time or for the 50th time. Every person who is struggling with suicide or has attempted suicide is worthy of your time, of space, of support. Never think that because they've said it before, and haven't followed through or haven't been successful at ending their life that they wouldn't do it again. No, and, and thank you so much for that. And we knew going in that this episode was going to be uncomfortable for not just those listening, but to us. And I think just even acknowledging that has been so important because like I've been, we've been doing, uh, I've had two seasons where at some point, and, and I'm going to say it laughingly, it's like, hey, I tried to die once. Why am I saying it like this? Because even even though I knew I know for a fact I've gone through that, it doesn't make it any less uncomfortable despite all of the education, access to services and opportunities that I've received. Think about your loved one. Think about that person that as you listen to this episode, you're like, I know they need that support, or maybe you're yourself. 
don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to have that uncomfortable conversation. When we say, hey, if you're, if you're feeling like you want to talk, contact that National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. What do you have to lose? And most importantly, what do you have to gain? You can gain an opportunity to not be afraid to have conversations about not just those thoughts, but what you would like to replace those thoughts with. And it's going to take some time. And it's going to take some patience, but with recovery support services, support groups, seeking therapy, setting healthy boundaries, realizing that some, some, some of our family members are going to react based on the way that they know. It's not going to magically make me feel better if somebody just says like, Mira, no haga eso, oh, don't do that. But let's not forget that even if for us it's uncomfortable, Maybe they've just never been exposed to a situation where they've had to react to anything like that. And if anybody wants to reach out to us, remember there's the email, juan at happytofail.com. If there's any question, comment, reactions, because uh, this is all not not like a one-stop shop. If anything, I think Anna and I could, I I know for a fact that as we listen to this episode afterwards, we're going to be like, how come we didn't talk about this or that? Because we're trying to condense generationals, a generation's worth of challenges into maybe like an hour conversation about something impacting approximately over 47,000 people a year for the ones that have been counted, not including things like overdose, uh, accidental overdoses or not, not including the, the things that are reported as not a suicide, but maybe a heart attack, but maybe at its core, it was a suicide because there's always a margin for error. And as somebody that has had access to this information, I know for a fact A lot of times that is happening. And don't be afraid to also follow our Facebook page, facebook.com slash happy to fail. And Anna, any any closing comments or something that you would like to uh, mention here? I hope that, you know, whoever listens to this podcast recognize, like Juan said, that it was also difficult for us to talk about it. And and that's okay, you know. (laughs) Um, And just reach out if you need anybody. If you don't have a good relationship with your parents, reach out to a friend. Reach out to someone. And if there's anything in particular that you feel that, you know, you'd like to hear more about or any particular questions, you know, reach out to the to the contact that Juan gave before and um, can't wait to talk to you guys next time. So up until next time, thank you for listening, taking care of yourselves, and we'll be back with another episode of Happy to Fail.